Now, a couple weeks ago, we introduced this drawing. Some of you, if you were here, are real familiar with it. We're talking about rescued from religion in this series. And this drawing was about the shame forces that drive religion. And as we illustrated it a few weeks ago, each one of us grows up with these messages in our, in our hearts and our minds about, about how we're not good enough, these negatives in us, these shame messages, these things that say we, we can't live up to life. And, and religion, what it does in our, in our life is causes us to try to solve these things by doing all sorts of good behaviors. So religion creates all these rules that we have to follow. The problem is that doesn't work. And it hasn't worked. It leads to dead religion. It leads to dead faith. It leads to an emptiness. It leads to, it leads to hiding behind this veneer of behavior instead of being real and authentic and honest people, both with God and with each other. And we went on to further talk about how the fact that that what God wants to do is change us from the inside out. And it says actually in the Bible that when we give our lives to Christ, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, that the Holy Spirit Himself, the Spirit of God Himself comes in us and lives in us. And He fully accepts us. He washes clean all the negatives across everything in our life. And He fully accepts us. And another way of saying that is this Scripture verse in, in 2 Corinthians where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And we talked about the fact that, that our journey as Christians is, is one of relationship, not rules. It's one where God is so patient with us that, that He's not worried about changing all these things so fast or maybe not even getting all of these things cleaned up, these behaviors in this outer circle. This is our inner core, the behaviors in our outer circle. He's not even concerned necessarily about getting all of those 100% cleaned up even in our lifetime. Because if we look at the Bible and the, the characters in the Bible, we see people that there were things that were obvious sin in their life that we would categorize as such that he never even confronted in some people's lives. And yet he calls them men and women of great faith. Instead, he wants us, we refer to a scripture of, of be being filled where we allow constantly this relationship to grow with God and, and to expand and turn some of these negatives into pluses as, as His Spirit, as we trust His love and His presence, that we, learn to, that we learn to have those things changed. And when those things are changed, then these positive things in our behavior become natural instead of something we do to try to hide how we really feel about ourselves. And this whole series has been about religion and, and the fact that it, it provides for us distortions of what faith really is. I grew up in Keister, Minnesota. You can actually see a picture of it on the screen. This is 90% of the town. Really great metropolis of Keister. I, I highlighted for you my home and, and the school I used to walk downhill through the snow in minus 20 degree weather, barefoot, without a coat. No, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. Although I did walk to school some days on 20 below, and even with a coat and with shoes, it did feel really cold. Uh, the coldest temperature I ever experienced in my life was 35 below raw temperature, and the wind chill was 110 below, and I had to walk right near the school there to the grocery store, and it was a miserable two-block two walk. But I always walked by this place with the red circle, and I have a memory 
embedded in my mind that I don't think I will ever forget. It's one of those things that's seared in your mind. There was a, a gentleman that lived at the house right where that circle is. He was an older man. He lived alone. And I think he actually came out every morning to put his flag up the flagpole at the time everybody was going to school simply because he was lonely and he wanted somebody to greet him. And so I usually walked that way to school and I usually greeted him and said hi and we'd have a short chat if I wasn't running late. But I remember one day I walked down there standing in that very spot. I walk up to him and he's standing by his flagpole and he's weeping almost uncontrollably. And I said, Don, what's the matter? And he, he couldn't talk. It took him about a minute or two to even talk. And he says to me, last night before I got home, it was dark when I got home. Before I got home, some, uh, some kids came and tore my flag down and ripped it up and soiled it, stomped it in the ground. And if he would have left it at that, I would have thought, Don, he's just a, you're just a really good patriot. And I would admire him just like I admire someone who just has great religious fervor. But after a, a few seconds where I touched him on the shoulder and just, and just tried to comfort him and talked to him a few seconds later, he says, don't, don't these kids know the price that we paid for freedom and what this flag represents? He said, there's Charlie and there's Sam. And he goes on to list about five or six names. He says, they were my close friends and I watched them die when I was in World War II. Don't we know the price that freedom causes, that freedom comes with? I'd like to just, uh, just in memory of Memorial Day, if you know somebody who, is, uh, who has died in the line of service, maybe it's an uncle, maybe it's a dad, maybe it's a friend, I'd like you to go ahead and stand. If there's anybody here. Anybody? And if you have served in the military, I'd like you to also stand. And we just want to thank you and honor you for paying a price for our freedom. I appreciate it. Go ahead and you may be seated. This is what we remember on Memorial Day, that freedom doesn't come easy. And this story that's etched in my mind even 35 years after it happened also plays into one of the lies that we face that religion forces upon us, that we carry with us in our faith sometimes, that undermines our faith. And that's this. That if we're good Christians, if we follow God really well, if we do the right things, if our faith is really strong, that life will be easy. And we've all struggled with that. We've all gone through those uh, days when you know things weren't going right and we said, where the heck are you, God? Aren't things supposed to be better? Aren't things supposed to be easy? If I do the right things, shouldn't this make life easy? And while there's a bit of truth in that, There's a distorted lie that affects our faith. And it's, it's, it's tough to wrestle with because not only does religion make us think that truth, but, but we even read Jesus' own words sometimes and we come up with that conclusion. Like in Matthew 11, verse 28, it says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then Paul even says stuff like that. He says in Galatians 5, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And he says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and, and self-control. 
And if I were to ask you the question, what do you think of when you think of life being on easy street? What do you think of? I could think of the fruit of the Spirit, especially peace and love. That, that, would, that would be something I would characterize as, as, as an easy life. What do you picture? Do you picture being on a beach with your feet up and, and you got room service and maid service and you don't have any financial worries and you just get to do what you want to do and life is good and everything's in order and easy? Growing up in the flatlands of Minnesota, I used to dream of uh, having this mountain lodge, thinking that would be easy street. And because I was a big Daniel Boone TV show fan when I was growing up, I always thought of a nice big stockade around it, too. How many of you could admit to that as well? There's a legitimate longing in our hearts to have life be easier. And it's actually part of it is a God longing. Part of it is related to a God promise. And there's a truth in the fact that Jesus wants to lead us to an abundant life, a better life. But when that's put in the context of religious thinking, the context of American culture, it results in a faith in which church and faith become primarily about meeting our own needs for healing, getting our needs met. And in my work with churches up and down the West Coast for years and doing intervention work and helping new churches work and trying to add fuel to the fire of good, healthy churches that were growing. And, and, and every place that I've ever been, I've heard people say, I want a healthy, safe place to be when I go to church. And what that usually translates is to this statement, that we need to heal the body of believers here before we do too much reaching out. Unless we're healed, how can we reach out? Healthiness among us must be what draws people to Christ, right? And there is a measure of truth in that, that God does want the fact that He transforms our life to be attractive, but there's also a lie in that that goes back to the whole core of religion that says it's really what our performance is that draws people to Jesus. And it's not about God's grace necessarily. You know, I grew up, Obviously, if you look at Keister, it was surrounded by farms, and I grew up doing a lot of cultivating, a lot of plowing. I plowed thousands of acres, cultivated thousands of acres in my day. And I'm so glad that uh, we had nice, big tractors rather than an oxen with something behind it. In fact, I, had a, I got to sit in a nice air-conditioned cab with a cassette player. I'm, I'm not old enough for it to be an 8-track, but I'm not young enough for it to be a CD. Plowing thousands of acres. You know, when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's not asserting a theme that religion makes life easy. Think of a yoke. You know what a yoke is? It's a wooden beam that holds two animals together to pull something or turn something or push something. Yokes in the day were usually custom fit to the animals and they were oftentimes custom fit to the task given them. In fact, there were certain yokes that were used more in the mountains because they were better at helping the animals stop the cart because, you know, the worst thing in the mountains is to actually have no brakes, right? A yoke though beyond that, from the earliest of times, across cultures, not just biblical culture, but across cultures, a yoke was always termed a symbol of subservience. It was 
a symbol of who do you serve. In fact, it was so prominently used that, that across cultures and even in the Bible, when there were military victories, that they would sometimes hold up a yoke or sometimes take their swords and create this hallway which was intended to be a symbol of a yoke and make the defeated people walk under it in order to, to re- really recognize who do they serve. They're no longer in control. I am in control now. Because a yoke allowed somebody with small movements to control massive beasts of burden. Jesus is comparing in this verse the crushing stress of trying to measure up on our own, the crushing stress that religion can bring to us, or the crushing stress that living, living under the yoke of sin can bring us to, to living in complete submission to Him. The connotation of the yoke is that there is indeed actually work, maybe even hard work to do. But he talks about him being gentle and humble in heart, not like a harsh taskmaster, not like one who whips all the time, not like one who doesn't care whether the yoke's not fitted, not like one who who demands people to do more than they can bear. But Jesus is a master to us who pays attention to allowing us to do a task that we can actually be successful at, that we can complete. He doesn't give us things that are too hard for us. And He doesn't treat us harshly. And that's what it means when He talks about His yoke being easy and light. The belief that church or faith makes life easier causes us to focus on meeting our own needs. But we see in this illustration of of Jesus' story and in the way Jesus treated His disciples that, that Jesus doesn't bring healing to us in a vacuum of teaching and pastoral care and counseling and, and fixing all of our issues and introspection. He actually spends time bringing healing to us and healing to our insecurities by giving us meaningful mission and meaningful work that we can accomplish that, that confronts our insecurities and confronts our fears and allows Him to prove His faithfulness to us. In the midst of those fears, He gives us work that makes this minus in our life stand out and then says, will you let me love you in that and turn it to a positive? And that's how He brings healing to us. Easy street religious lie also completely misses the concept of faith itself. We don't need faith for things that we can see, for things that are already accomplished. We don't need faith to be healed here when everything is already healed and already gone away. We don't need faith to do a task that God has called us to when we know it's completely within our ability to do it. And when we're so confident of that, so Paul addresses this whole issue of needing to trust in the goodness of God, needing to trust that He will change us in His time and His way. In Philippians 2, he says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill His good purpose. Work out our salvation. Salvation. He's talking about something that's happening now. He's not talking about just going to heaven. He's saying, working out now. Realize how much I want to save you, how much God wants to save you and heal you now. 
And he says, work it out. Meaning, he expects this to be a progressive process. He expects it to be a lifelong process. Something that we have to continually do. And salvation, it's, it's not something we do to ourselves. It's something He does for us and in us. So the focus here is simply on how diligently are we and how intensely consistent are we going to stay focused on staying surrendered to Him, the One who can save us. We can't save ourselves. How intensely are we going to stay focused on Him saving us to let Him do His work in our lives, in His time, in His way, under His leadership. And why fear and trembling? That's always bothered me in that verse. Why fear and trembling? I think it's simply this, because it's so easy to fall back into seeing these negatives in our life and try to solve it through religious means again instead of looking to Him, our Savior, to solve it. He understands it's so easy to take back control to take back leadership in our life. The Pharisees did it. The Israelites did it. If you, look, if you read the book of Galatians in the New Testament, they had recently come to Christ and they fell back into taking control of their own life immediately as well. It's the, one of the biggest themes of the Bible, to fall back into the trap of religion versus relationship or fall back into the trap of having to prove that we're worthy rather than, rather than surrendering to His love, to, to leading our life rather than following, to... To, to not trusting that God's working fast enough and so we have to stop trusting the Spirit and we have to fix all this stuff because He's not working fast enough and there's, there's too much difficulty and too much pain or, or to fall back into the trap of believing that we're sinners first and foremost rather than a masterpiece of God. I want you to watch this video clip. It's a, it's a little bit longer one, but it's, it's powerful and it illustrates this, this truth. Go ahead. You are an original masterpiece. And yet we're a masterpiece that sometimes looks like maybe this car does. It's going to show up on the screen. And it takes some pain, it takes some work, it takes some heat, it takes some dents and pounding to remove it, some cutting to remove the dents that, that we've been through because of the crashes in our life. And they say here, and the Bible says, I want you to work out this salvation in every area of your life. Relationship with God stays engaged in the change process. It doesn't take timeouts. Let's God define the timeouts. Religion shoots for this place where we're good enough. We've got all the things in control. We've got all the rules figured out. We're good enough. But relationship with God stays engaged in the process. Relationship perseveres in this quest to be who God called us to be, not just because of healing our own needs, but because the destination that God called us to is to have a meaningful, loving, wonderful impact on people around us. Religion, on the other hand, builds this fort of self-protection to keep people out to make sure that nobody will tempt us and that we're not around somebody who's going to cause us to sin. Relationship lives from a place of surrender, following God's plan and timing without condemning ourselves because we know how much, how loved we are and how forgiven completely we are. But religion relies on working hard to meet the criteria of being a good Christian that others will accept because it really relies more on our reputation and our performance more than it does on God. 
Relationship focuses on God's view of who we are as a masterpiece, that He's creating us and He's recreating us. He's healing us. He's, he's taking out the dents and making us exactly how He intended us to be. And He's going to be faithful in that process and we can trust Him to do that. But religion focuses on our sin and trying to make ourselves feel good and look good. When Jesus says it's easy, he doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult. He doesn't mean it's not going to have hard work involved in it. He does mean there's no need to worry. There's no need for anxiousness. There's, there's no need for us to take the burden on ourselves because he's covered, it, covered us, he's filled us, and he's promised to continue to work in us to bring healing. Faith does not necessarily make life easier but it does make it better. Freedom doesn't come free. It comes with a price. In fact, Jesus said it so very real to us and in so doing encourages us when he says in John 16, he says, I've, I've told you these things and the, and the things he's just told them are all these trials, these difficulties that they're going to face. And he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace so that you can let go of your worry and your anxiety. In this world, he says, you will have trouble, but take heart. Or, or another, ver- another translation says, take courage. Or another one translates it saying, be, be unshakably assured. Another one says, be of good cheer. Another one says, be brave, because the word contains all those ideas. And why? Because I have overcome the world, Jesus says to us. Faith does not necessarily make life easier but it does make it more beautiful. It makes it more full. It makes it better. It makes it more free. But freedom comes from a persevering fight to retain it, just like we celebrate for our country today, and it's a fight worth fighting for. I'm going to close the service a little bit different. We're going to do this a little more frequently probably. I want you to take a few minutes here, and I want you to uh, take some time to think about an application for your own life. You can take your program. You can write on the back of that if you want. And here's what I want you to consider. Where is God speaking to you most through this message? You being in control or him being in control? Is he speaking to you about surrendering to his yoke? Or are you believing the religious lie that I need to be healed before I can serve, before I can do anything, before God can use me? And therefore, you make church primarily about and faith primarily about meeting your needs? Or maybe he's challenging you in in the fact that you may have taken over responsibility for cleaning your own life up instead of letting him continue to lead and you follow, being patient with God's love to bring healing to you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to either spend some time thinking about that in your own life and maybe on the back of your program, write a prayer to God. Just two-sentence, three-sentence prayer to God about what you want to say back to him, about what area he's dealing with. Or I want to also give you the option of turning to a friend next door and saying, would you pray for me about this? We're going to give you about two, three minutes to do that, and then we'll come and we'll receive our offering and close the service. If you came and would like somebody to pray for you and didn't have a chance to grab somebody next to you to pray, we'd love to pray with you. So um, just gather one of us, grab one of us, grab a friend. Have a great week. Let's remember that freedom isn't free. And let's press on in God, okay?
Let's press on to find his love and his freedom. Not press on in our own power. Not, not out of guilt, but out of gratefulness because he loves us so much. God bless. Have a great week. Come quest.